0: So let's begin with this thought. Let me redefine worship. This is the year of worship. What is it? Well, remember, let's keep it simple. Worship is anything that demonstrates that God is most important to you. Let's say that again. Real simple. Worship is anything that demonstrates that God is the most important person in your life. So For example, if you make a lifestyle change because God wants you to, that's an act of worship. If you sing a song to God because he's valuable to you, that's an act of worship. All those can be worship issues. A lifestyle of worship is someone that lives like God matters, that God matters most. All right. We out of Bibles. Are we clear? All right. We're out of Bibles. All right, let's dive into this. Anytime we launch a brand new book, like the book of 1 Samuel that we're about to go through, we have to figure out the background stuff and why we care. All right? So I entitled today's message, Worship from Nowhere. The Bible is a collection of stories, cycles of God bringing people back to himself. Over and over in all the different pages, God is constantly saying, I want you to know me for who I am. I want you to worship me for who I am. So I'm going to get into your face. I'm going to get into your life. I'm going to mix things up so you might see me. That is no different in our lives. God will use circumstance, situation, other people to get your attention. Because if he has ever had your heart, he is not content to not have your heart. So he will go to extreme lengths to win your heart back. He will sometimes use kindness where he will shock you with blessing. And you will think, wow, God, you really do love me. For others of us, that's not going to work. And he will use tragedy To re-rack your whole life. That he might re-enter the center of who you are. The fill in the blank in front of you is simply this. It's on the handout sheet that was given to you in the front door. And it is this. God will restore worship in his people. God will restore worship in his people. He knows how. He is patient he will wait you out and he is doing it right now he will restore worship in this church in a special way and he will do it by means that we don't even know yet but he will make sure that if we call this a house of worship that it is a house of worship he's not content any other way all right so let's get into some of the background stuff First and second Samuel, the books that you have in front of you in your Bible, used to just be one book. They were called Samuel. All right, awesome. It was broken out later on when they did the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. They broke it out and said, no, let's call it first and second. But it all used to kind of blend together. It trails off right after the book of Judges. In your Bible, it will say Judges, Ruth, little tiny book. Then it goes into first Samuel In the Hebrew way of organizing it, Ruth is moved somewhere else and there's a seamless transition. Now, why is it called Samuel? You go, well, Samuel wrote it. Uh, Maybe. We at least know that somebody was operating off his personal notes for at least the majority of 1 Samuel. How do we know that? Too much personal information. Samuel was recording stuff and writing stuff down how do we know that he didn't write the whole thing because chapter 25 records his death That's really hard to write All right, so even all of second samuel is supposed to be kind of like oh after he died So if you're going to write an autobiography, usually it ends with i'm really old Okay, it doesn't usually end with so anyway, I died and that's w-. no, no only a few people have ever written books like that lazarus right? Jesus, you know, you can do those kind of books, right? And I, anyway, I died. Then I rose back to life and I, okay. When Samuel dies, he dies. Now what's intriguing is why it's called Samuel. Here's why. What is the book mainly about? It's mainly about the first King of Israel and the greatest King of Israel. First King of Israel, his name is Saul. The greatest King of Israel's name is David as a matter of fact if we were casting a play they would be the two big actors because the whole beginning part is really about Saul then it shifts over and all the rest of it is about David they are the ones that everybody wants to focus on they're the the best looking guys and even though one comes out of obscurity then he's kind of the one that can do all the cool stuff the David and Goliath stuff all that is in there so why is it called Samuel Samuel if we're casting the play it's kind of like the side part. Kind of like, well, he's not as good as an actor as the other guys, but he's still pretty good. But he's a side guy. Why does the book start with him? And why does it carry his name on it? Maybe I'm bending it to our year. Maybe I'm making too much of it. But I believe it's because these books are books of worship. And it was Samuel... That was the catalyst of worship in Israel. It was not David. It was certainly not Saul. It was one guy who comes out of nowhere. That turns the whole nation. He is the one. That installs the king. The one that tries to get through to Saul. That Saul would be a man of worship. But he would not. It was Samuel who anoints King David, who builds into him to be the man that he ended up being. It was this guy with a side note leading from the second chair that was constantly restoring worship in Israel. Are you the catalyst in your family for the restoration of worship? Are you the catalyst in your friendships for the worship of God? Are you a Samuel or are you the one getting all the credit but doing very little of the driving for God? What part would you play? Now, there's a few other things that we have to know. These are basically parts of the history books of the Old Testament. If you want to include the first five, which are normally known as Moses' books or uh, the Torah, Genesis kicks it off. Genesis talks about the beginning of all things. At the beginning, God makes everything. It's perfect and worship is at a maximum. Adam and Eve, perfect state, doing what God wants. God is glorified. By the time you get done with all the history books, you end at the end of 2 Kings. How does 2 Kings end? With all of Israel... In Captivity the whole nation's blown up. They're wiped out of their land and They're imprisoned How did we go from perfection of worship? to waste The history books in the Old Testament are answering that question Because the Jews who would read it would say how did we get here? What happened? I thought we were the chosen people. I thought we were the apple of God's eye. I thought that we were His treasured possession on earth. I thought we were supposed to tell the whole world what God's like. Why do we have no home? Why do we have no land? Why do we have no family unit anymore? Why are we not a nation? And someone would hand them the history books and say, how about you go back through and look? I think God has spelled it very clearly. Why we don't exist anymore. Of course, after that time, God brought about restoration. But then there was chaos and restoration and chaos. When this stuff happens, let me tell you where we're at in history. We're at about 1100 BC. So let's zoom back. We're at 2011, right? So you add on another thousand. And 100 right so we're at what three thousand thirty one hundred eleven years ago same time as the trojan war all right so if you kind of spin that in your mind history wise it was during a time known in israel's history as the period of the judges one of the darkest most messed up periods in all of israel's history Samuel is likely born while Samson is reigning. Everybody remember Samson? Samson's the judge, the dude with long hair, the really buff guy, kind of knocks down the pillars. We all remember this guy? All right. Now, Samson and Samuel are linked very closely. Their dads are described in almost the same way. There is miraculous birth. They are both lifelong Nazarites. But one did it really wrong, and one did it really right. So they were complete in contrast. So Samuel is born during this time, around 1100 B.C., back in history. And in that world situation at the time, Israel was in a relative place of peace from the outside. The big superpowers, Egypt, was waning Mesopotamian region all the other people that used to beat up on them. They're all doing their own things So within their own borders Rose up two people to power and they will be the primary enemies to Israel through all our stories. They are the Ammonites The Ammonites descended from lot everybody remember lot. That's the sodom and gomorrah guy, right? That was abraham's nephew his crew they fight israel and the other group are the Philistines. Everybody remember the Philistines? That's where Goliath came from. We're going to hear about that crew. Those guys are fighting against Israel inside their own territory. All right, so we got a little bit of the setting here. All right, to let you know a little bit about the Judges and that period, I need you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Judges, last page, last chapter, last line. It's page 187, and the Bible's handed to you. 187, 187 Judges 21-25 The last line of that book that transitions into 1 Samuel is incredibly telling It's just one line but it speaks volumes Remember, the book of Judges was a cycle of I really think God is awesome. Oh wait, there's other stuff in the world. Wait, who's God? Oh no, I'm in captivity. God, I need a deliverer. Raise up deliverer. Yay, God is awesome. Wait, who's God? Oh no, I'm in the captivity. I need a deliverer. 300 years of the same cycle, ramming your head against the wall over and over. Absolute insanity. There were localized judges, and they'd reign in this area, and then this judge would come up and reign this area, and there was a whole bunch of them, and. It was just absolute chaos. And this is how those 300 years ended. And it's about to launch the monarchy period. The books we're about to study will cover 130 years. Through the reigns, Saul, David, to the point where the nation splits after Solomon. This is the last line of judges. In those days... Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Hmm. Doesn't sound super shocking on the surface. Kind of sounds like America. But it's critical. As a matter of fact, it's devastating. Israel had no king. You go, well, of course they didn't have a king. They don't start the king thing until the book we're studying now. So no, of course they didn't have a king. They've never had a king. So no, Israel didn't have a king. That's just a fact. Incorrect. Israel always had a king. Who was their king? God. Israel was created as a theocracy. We have a democracy. They had a theocracy. Theo, God, God runs the show. To say that Israel had no king means God had been rejected as the leader of Israel. You don't just say that. As a matter of fact, that is an absolute offense to God. To say, we have no king, what are you talking about? We want a king. It means, God, you're not cutting it. We don't like you. We don't care about you. You're not doing anything for our nation. We want what the other nations have. We want a secular society. By one statement, they erased all worship in rejecting God as king. That actually is said four times in the book of Judges. There was no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. What does it mean for everyone to do as is right in their own eyes? What does that mean? It means secular society, yeah? It means what we live in. Everybody kind of has their own groove Well, I'm kind of into this religion and I kind of mush this religion with this one and I make it up as I go along or I don't know, I'm agnostic. I don't know if there's a God or not and it's all our friends. So what's the problem with it? It's devastating because it's talking about Israel. Why is that particularly bad? Because Israel was created as a nation through a man named Abraham for one reason to demonstrate to the world what God is like. Their whole purpose for existing. God didn't need more secular life. God did not need more secular people. God did not create Israel so we could just have one more nation. Israel was created for one reason alone. Tell the world what I'm like and what I like. What happens if they cease to do that? They cease to have any value on the face of the earth. You go, wow, they're losers. Same issue to Christianity. Yeah, you are the salt and light of the world. If the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it but to be thrown out and trampled by men? If we are not people of worship if we Christians are not making an impact on our neighbors, our communities, if we are not living lives that raise up the name of God, then what are we doing? We know all we're doing is taking up space. We are not what we were designed to be. So as bad as it looks on Israel, it looks the same way for us. I would hope that that is enough to jar us into wanting to be different. Maybe so, maybe not. In this time of wasteland, desolation, no worship, there's one little dysfunctional family that is about to change everything. No one knows about them. No one cares about them. But their faithfulness Will change the course of history. God will always have a remnant. God will always have one little core that worships his name. Sometimes it's one dude, Noah, right? The whole world was so wicked. God was going to kill them all, but he found one. That was the remnant. Sometimes it's one tribe, sometimes it's one clan, sometimes it's one people group. This time, it's one dysfunctional family. Turn with me to First Samuel as we begin. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, page 190. Jump back over Ruth and get over there and we'll read the first couple verses. It starts like this. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zophite. From the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you make us, as dysfunctional as we are, a family like that, that consistently worships you, that regardless of our internal challenges, regardless of our poor decisions that leave us in a state of chaos, may we worship you. Would you restore order to our land? Order to our hearts, that you might be worshipped as you ought to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here's how it goes. There was a certain man, kind of a nobody, from a town called Ramathiam. Later it shortened to Rama, which makes it a lot easier. Many scholars believe that in the New Testament that town became known as Arimathea. Anybody know where that was found? Anybody heard that name before? Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament was one of the two men that anointed Jesus' body for burial, and it was his tomb where Jesus was laid. That same hometown is the hometown right here. There was a certain man from Ramah, a zoophyte from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Alcanna. The name El is the name God. It means God. So anytime you see any name in the Bible that has L in it, somehow the name means something about God. Elkanah means God has created. He is the son of blah, 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 the son of blah, 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 the son of tofu. Right? We don't care about those names. We're moving on. But it says he was an Ephraimite. Well, that's weird. Because one of the books that parallel this one is a book called First Chronicles. And the first nine chapters are genealogies. We know exactly where this guy came from. He is not an Ephraimite by lineage, he's a Levite. What's a Levite? Well, let's go back. If you remember, when God was going to create the nation of Israel, and they were supposed to be the sign to all the world of what God was like, he had priests. They all had to descend from Moses and Aaron. You remember that? All through Aaron's line. The whole parting of the Red Sea guy, the Ten Commandment guy, his brother Aaron, all of the priests and priest helpers called Levites had to come through a certain family line. Otherwise, you weren't allowed to do it. That was his people. As a matter of fact, he came through one of the sons named Kohath. The Kohathites... Had a special job as the levite team their job was to break down the holy of holies and move it That's kind of a big deal Why well, let's remember what the tabernacle was like. It was a tented church In that tented church there were special rooms You would walk into the holy place and there would be fancy stuff in there to minister to God you walk through the curtain And there was the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God. If anyone would go in there, except the high priest, except the one time a year, they would die instantly. You don't mess with God's stuff. One clan was allowed to go in, touch it, break it down, and move it to the next location because they were a nomadic people, they would move around. So these guys had a special honor. Once they finally set up the temple, those guys would do other special stuff. But that was his team. That was his family line. So why is he living in Ephraim? Because when they broke out the 12 tribe pieces in the nation, Levites didn't get any land. They got sprinkled all over the nation and his family grew up in Ephraim. So he is both a Levite and an Ephraimite. All right, let's move on. He had two wives. What's that? All right. Awesome. So now we talk about polygamy. Great. He had two wives. First question is, how was he allowed to have two wives? Second, more important question, why would he want two wives? (laughs) Amen? All right. So he had two wives. First of all, the Bible does not in the old Testament does not say that that was against the law of God. It's never endorsed. Now one prophet suggested it to somebody, but God never endorses it and says it's a good idea. As a matter of fact, we know from the creation account, it's not God's best. It's not what God wants. He created Adam and Eve, not Adam, Eve, bunny, Bambi, and all these other girls. All right. He didn't He didn't exactly do that. He kind of had a one-to-one ratio. Kind of stick with that one, all right? Anytime you see polygamy show up in Scripture, it's messed up and dysfunctional every time. So the Bible is very clear on, no, we're not doing that. Now, later on, God says to the king, you're not having many wives. Knock it off. And he does get on his case. And it was supposed to be a trickle-down effect. So that everyone else would follow that example that didn't work out so hot. So he had two wives that also suggests that he was wealthy because when you have one and they say, Hey, honey, can I borrow the credit card? And then you have a two and then they want to borrow the credit card too. That's a lot of money going out. So we know that he was somewhat wealthy. All right. It takes a little bit of money to do this. Now, why would he have two? Um, because in that day, kids were a big deal. Kids were a big deal for a number of reasons, partially because there was no government assistance when you get older. So your kids took care of you. Not only that, but it was an agricultural society. So you had your kids work the land with you. So for practical reasons, it was very important to have kids. But on a deeper level was the issue of land. Remember, the promised land is landlocked. There's only a certain amount of territory that's called promised land. So, everybody had their own piece of it. If you did not have any sons to take over for you, your land would go away and you can't get it back. So, all men were absolutely obsessed with having male lineage to carry on their land. So, if a man had married a woman and were about to find out she could not have any children, the next logical step would be to add a wife so that you could have lineage to take over your land. That's why he had two wives. Let's take a look at who they are. One was called Hannah, and that means grace. The other, Peninnah, which means ruby. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. But make no mistake, though they're dysfunctional, They are God honoring. Look at the next line. Year after year, that means consistently, all Hebrew males were required to go to the tabernacle three times a year for festivals. Elkanah did that without a hitch. Didn't miss one. He was absolutely dedicated to the worship of the God of Israel. In a time when no one else was, that's a big deal. So year after year, this man went up from his town, from the foothills to the mountains, to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, about 15 miles from Ramah. At Shiloh, Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Who were they? Big time losers. Uh, Eli, who's the high priest, is kind of like... Half good, half bad, pretty much kind of useless. All right? The whole priesthood had descended down into garbage. And Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, we will find out in our next passage, are some of the worst priests ever. They took advantage of women. They stole God's offering. And these are all his kids. They had Egyptian names. Hophni means tadpole. So his first kid was Tadpole. Second kid was Nubian. Dark-skinned Egyptian name is what he would say. So there was Darker One and Tadpole. Those were his two kids. Now, these guys were just not okay. You'll find out God takes them out in a rather dynamic way because they are unacceptable. It says, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat... That's a rare treat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and because the Lord had closed her womb. It was not a regular reason of being in a messed up gene pool, of being in a broken world, of having problems normally. God flat out blocked her. It's a couple weird things about that. He actually closed the wombs of Rachel and Sarah as well. They were barren. They went through this. There's a whole history of godly women wrestling through infertility. But this one uses weird language. In the Hebrew, almost always when it would say, the Lord did this, when it would say it that way, it was trying to describe how God was fulfilling his promise to Israel. So here comes the question. How is blocking a woman from having children fulfilling the promise to Israel? God told Israel a couple things. Number one, be fruitful and multiply. Have as many kids as you can. Oh, look, you can't. I blocked you. Why would he tell them to have kids when he's the one that shut it down? He's not even allowing her to do what he asked her to do. How does that answer the problem of Israel? Maybe some of you feel the same way. You're in a place in life where you believe that you have gifts and talents and a calling and God just absolutely stonewalled you, blocked you out. And you're thinking, God, how is this honoring to you? How is this furthering your kingdom? How am I ministering on your behalf? You won't even let me fill in the blank. In those moments, we must trust that God knows what he's doing. We're probably not going to like it. But God does know what he's doing. God closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, verse 6, her rival, the other wife, kept provoking her in order to irritate and humiliate her. Just like Hagar did to Sarah. Same thing. This went on year after year. When Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. This is crushing this woman's spirit. Why would God allow that? Why would God allow her to be in personal pain? For those of you ladies that have ever struggled with infertility, you know the emotional torment that goes on in your heart. I want you to take that feeling and put it in a social context where everyone in society calls you cursed. And now you know what she feels like. Then put her in a household where the other woman messes with her head every day. This is a tore up lady. Why would society call her cursed? Because in Deuteronomy, God set up an an organized system with Israel. If you do what I tell you to do. I'll bless you. I will make you have crops. I will make you go on in your wealth. And I will give you children. If you don't do what I say. And you violate my commands. I will curse you. I will stop you from having kids. As she walks down the street. With no children. Everyone says. Clearly she's cursed. What a horrible predicament. This woman is so godly that she goes through this whole process with grace. No wonder that's what her name means. Take a look at this. At least she had a husband that loved her, right? That's good. Nope. Welcome insensitive guy. Here we go. Verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Well, I don't know, moron. Maybe you should look at it a little closer. Sorry, she didn't say that. I said that. Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Which means angry, not sad. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Come on, baby. Don't I fulfill you? No, you don't. So that was the help she got. Wonderful. So her husband would go, no, 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 I love you. You should be just fine. Come on, let's smile about it. All right, he may be godly, but he's stupid. (laughs) Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, meaning during the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, when they would go up to this area of God, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli, the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. All right. Who's this guy? Remember, he's the weird high priest guy. His job was to sit at the seat of the door as judge and ruler over the worship service. He would be like sitting right there at the door, making sure that we're all worshiping accurately. So he would look over and be like, what's wrong with you? How come you're not worshiping? He was that kind of thing. And he wanted to make sure, allegedly, that God was honored, the Great irony is that his sons were the worst offenders. All right? So he takes notice of this gal, Hannah, who stands up. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She made a vow to God, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery, And remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Let's pause. That's a weird vow. Okay. I don't know how many of you have ever said to God, God, if you give me a child, I'll make sure he always has long hair. That is, that's kind of odd. All right. But not in ancient Israel. What is she doing? She's invoking a Nazarite vow on him. Now, a Nazarite vow is a dedicated time to God. It was almost always temporary. Only very few, the only recorded ones, are Samson and Samuel, though we believe that John the Baptist was as well. There's a couple other guys that did Nazarite vows, you would grow your hair long as an outward sign that you were dedicated to God during that period. At the end of it, you'd cut your hair off. And there were two other restrictions. As long as you're under vow, you can't eat anything with grapes. No fermented drink, no wine, no beer, no nothing like that. Cut it out of your life. The other thing was, you weren't allowed to touch dead bodies, which we all look at and we go, okay, right on, that'll be a hard one. Okay, in their society... Death was handled a lot differently. Everything was handled by the family. So it would mean that if someone passed away in your house, you would have to back up. You couldn't even get near them. It was a very specific, if there was roadkill on the ground, you did the whole stepping over, kind of wandering away, right? You don't touch any dead bodies ever. This is all stuff that Samson went through. Why would she do that? Well, you're going to find how much she wants his child And how much she honors God. Because what she's about to do is extraordinary. All right, let's keep looking at it. As she kept on praying to the Lord, verse 12, Eli observed her mouth. He's watching her. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. Well, of course. Don't you always assume that if someone's praying quietly at church that they're hammered? It's like, what? What what are we talking about? Okay, Israel was so messed up that this was a constant problem. This was not new to him. So in his mind, it's like, here we go again. So he immediately laser beams on her and starts tearing her apart. Check this out. It's not like she didn't have a bad day already. He said to her, how long are you gonna keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. So he's sitting there yelling at her across the worship service, right? Totally embarrassing her. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. What an incredibly sweet way to respond to an idiot. Don't you think, ladies, that there was other stuff she wanted to say? But she didn't. Okay, why did she mention beer? You go, well, that's weird. I thought that all began at Golden Colorado, right? You know? Okay. There is written tablets that say that Mesopotamia had a massive beer industry in 2,500 B.C. 2,500 B.C., they started putting regulations on it because it was out of control. 2,500 B.C., that is 1,500 years before this story. It's already been a huge problem all the way throughout history. So, yeah, it ended up being a big problem in Israel as well. So now Eli, who should have said, sorry, I totally didn't mean it, I misread it, doesn't say any of that. But he does say this. Now remember, he may not be a good holy guy, but he's the only holy guy she had. So she takes him seriously. This is what he said. Eli answered, verse 17, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And she went her way, ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. For the first time in a long time, she had hope. A holy guy said God might answer her prayers. She took that as a sign. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord. That word worship means fall down on your face, lay down before God. Then they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Okay, this is a very important phrase. I need you to lock this one in your head. Anytime you read the Old Testament, this one will throw you. And God remembered her. In our language, that suggests that he had forgotten her. Okay, that is not correct. In the Hebrew language, what it means is, God knows, God sees, God pays attention. But practically speaking, if he has not answered, he is practically has forgotten the situation. And once he turns his attention to start fixing it, he remembers. Does that make sense? It means actively starting to do something about it. All right. So anytime you hear that God remembered them, it meant and he began to take action to solve their problem. All right. So God remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, because remember, he was in on it too. She made a vow that if you let me have a kid, I will dedicate him to you. So Elkanah backed that up because Hebrew ancient world, If a woman made a vow, a wife made a vow to God, the husband could come back in and go, nope, I'm not buying it. It's off. He stepped in, locked it down. Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, that's up to three years old, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her, stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. All right. Real quick pause on something most of you aren't going to care about, but it's important as we move forward. There is problems in translating Samuel. Here's why. There are two ancient texts that we translate the Old Testament from. I say we. I haven't done anything. There are two ancient texts that scholars have translated from. The Hebrew one called the Masoretic text. The Greek one called the Septuagint. They don't agree on a number of different things in Samuel. Part of the reason is that the traditional Hebrew one that most people want to go to is in horrible condition it's been eaten away by time it's been eroded it's messed up as a matter of fact one of the big blessings of finding the Dead Sea Scrolls was that it helps to clarify the Hebrew text but they don't agree right here the Hebrew one says she brought three bulls the Greek one says she brought one bull well which is it so the NIV, you'll notice, went with the Greek side of things and said one. That was a bad choice. Should have went with the Hebrew one that says three. Why? Because look what else she brought. An ephah of flour. You know how much that is? It's five gallons of flour. That's a lot. And she brought a skin of wine. Normally when you bring an offering with one bull, you bring this much flour, And a small portion of wine. She brought three times the amount. Which would suggest what? There were three bowls. Do you understand how that kind of works? All right. So, as we're going through this series, just keep back in your mind that when I start clarifying this stuff and you go, hey, that's a little bit different, that's the only reason why. All right? We move on. But think of the generosity of how expensive this stuff is. They never ate meat. They would use bread stuff in their food, and cattle, especially a bull, was super expensive. She not only was giving away her child, but she brought all this stuff out of praise to God. This is extraordinary. So, when they had slaughtered the bull, or bulls, They brought the boy to Eli and she said to him, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child. The Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. She gave up her promised child. She handed over her miracle. At three years old, she only had this little boy for three years. She took him to the temple and waved goodbye. Now later on, she's going to have five more kids. But remember, it's not about how many more you have. It's about the one you don't have. How could she do that? Her whole life was dominated by wanting one thing. God gave it to her and she gave it back. This woman's faith and worship is so extraordinary, I can't even grasp how that would work. And now she sings a song. This song will be the pattern that Mary uses when she becomes the mother of Jesus. And writes in the New Testament a famous poem called Mary's Magnificat. It's patterned after Hannah's. Listen to her heart of worship as we close. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in Yahweh. In Yahweh, my horn, my strength is lifted high. My mouth brags and boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord, meaning there's no one other, no one so great and exalted, no one, no being outside of our world like you, God. There is no one besides you. There is no rock, no foundation, no safe place like our God. Do not keep talking proudly or let your mouth speak such ignorance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She, who was barren, has borne seven children. Pause. That's Hebrew poetry. She did not have seven children. She will never have seven children. She will have six. Why did she say seven when she only has one right now? Because in Hebrew, seven is a number of perfection. What she said is, I have received the perfect of all children, the answer to my soul. But she, meaning the other woman in the family who has many sons, pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. For it is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the strength of his Messiah. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. And she walked away. And the seed of worship was planted. One of the most common phrases you'll hear used of Samuel moving forward is that phrase right there. And Samuel worshiped before the Lord. That is what I want the catchphrase to be for you. May people say of you, Roger worships before the Lord. Marianne worships before the Lord. Scott worships before the Lord. Why? Because to worship before the Lord is a picture of a throne room. And you are the servant kneeling before your king and saying, what do you want, master? For I will go do it. That heart of submission, of surrender, of worship is that phrase. Is that your life? Is that my life? Is that our church? God will find a way. We have cried out to him. Not only you, but leadership elders have cried out to him and asked that this year be blessed, that we would learn how to worship. God's going to find a way. Somehow, some way we will learn to worship deeper than we ever have before Amen let's pray Heavenly Father may you be glorified in this place and may it begin with me may it begin with us to all that would pray this prayer let it begin with us Lord not pointing it out to our spouse not telling it to our family but we would be the catalyst of worship in our families catalyst of worship in our neighborhoods, in our state, in our nation, in our world. Use us however you wish that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.